Hello, all you funky people, and welcome to A Time of Monsters, where today you will be joined by me, Alex, comrade of Aaron and Pete, third mic on the show, and I will be interviewing a friend of mine today, Shane Sullivan, who has been reporting for Insight Crime for the last, how long? Uh, it's been like, I guess, nine months now or so. That's right. And uh, it's been mostly about Colombia in particular, but Central America. Yep. All of uh, Latin America, basically what uh, the organization Insight Crime is a think tank and I guess news outlet to talk about the influence of organized crime on politics and society generally in Latin America. How'd you get involved with them? Um, It's funny. I was actually working another job and we were covering, I guess, studying a lot of the same stuff. And I was just citing Insight Crime a ton in my research. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, hey, like, this is what I want to study. If I want to get in on the ground floor here, I better go work for the people who are in the field actually researching it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what kind of personal affinity or like association do you have with that part of the world? I don't know. I, I after I graduated from college in 2018, I moved and lived in Guatemala for a year. Mm -hmm. I was working down there and just kind of, it was a tumultuous time in Guatemalan politics. There was this big anti-corruption commission that the UN had created to basically help strengthen the judicial system in Guatemala. And at the time I was there, the president at the time, this guy, Jimmy Morales, he kicked out the UN-backed commission just unilaterally from the country. And this guy, Jimmy Morales, to give you a sense of who he is, He was a comedian before he ever became a president. Yeah, his name is Jimmy. Yeah, he was famous for his blackface routine. (laughs) So that tells you as much as you need to know, probably. But anyhow, witnessing that and uh, just being friends with a lot of people who are working uh, kind of in politics, a lot of students who are involved in politics. Down there in in, in Guatemala. Yeah, in Guatemala. Yeah. They just kind of got me interested in it. And I came back to the U.S. and decided like, hey. This is cool. I'm going to study this. What brought you, I guess, to Colombia in the most um, most recent kind of... Yeah. So I was in Colombia, I guess, last week, just kind of passing through on my way from Peru back up to the U.S. So just spent a little bit of time there. And then kind of when this entire thing in Colombia, the, the 2021 protests to be explicit. Well, before we get into the 2021 protest, yeah, yeah. to give a little background of it, like from what your, you know, gathered understanding has been from that area, like right. what would you say is the start of the unrest that is still going on today in not only Colombia, but all over Latin America? Ooh, well, that's a big question. I know that 2019 had a large, uh, yeah. a large string of protests. Right. For Colombia yeah. in particular. We'll just go back to recent history, I guess, because the history of Latin American politics is pretty dense. Well, sure. We can uh, get into that more on uh, different episodes of A Time yeah. of Monsters if you'd like to become a patron. <laughs> oh, patron on Patreon. There you go. Have you been on Patreon before? Is this your first I, time? I haven't been on Patreon. Oh, wow. Ever. Welcome. Yeah. This is like OnlyFans for people that don't have sex. Okay. Anyways, back to the history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is pre-pandemic authoritarian politics in Latin America have been a mainstay for decades. Um, Much to the, you know. Chagrin of citizens. <laughs> not to the, yeah, to the chagrin of citizens, but uh, helped by the hand of the United States. Certainly, certainly, in many cases. And Guatemala in particular. Yeah. Just to go back to that for a second. In 1954, 
this is a great story, but this <laughs> great story. I don't know about that. But basically, there was a coup that was backed by the CIA and the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company owned a ton of land in Guatemala mm-hmm. to cultivate bananas. And this is Alan Dulles, I want to say, is the name of the I CIA so. director at the time. Yeah. And his brother was on the board of the United Fruit Company. And so the CIA basically helped go in and overthrow this very leftist uh, ruler. To create a um, banana republic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better term. Yeah. Well, I think that's as good as it gets. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's on the nose. That's for sure. But basically, um, this leftist ruler was all about expropriating private land for the good of the people. The CIA backed that coup, took him down, um, and then installed a military dictator, kind of as in Chile or, you know, many other countries throughout the region. Sure. And then basically Guatemala had a civil war that went from 1960 until 1996. So all of this turbulent history in Latin America is a pretty recent thing, right? Sure. Or within the last 50, 60, right. 70 years. Exactly. Within our lifetimes in a way. You yeah. Know? Um, it's all been photographed. Yeah. It's all been photographed. That's for sure. So I guess the way I came to Colombia, just to get back to that question, is that Colombia, I mean, is a pretty historic country in the region. Like you have Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel. So on the organized crime front, there are just legendary stories there. Mm-hmm. And then you also had this big internal conflict in Colombia, um, which reached pretty epic proportions with the government, paramilitary groups, and guerrilla groups all fighting for years and years and years. Starting when? That was like in the late 50s, 60s. Yes, yeah, so this is kind of Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, so the dynamics there are pretty dense. We can get into that if you want. Is that caused by the same level of interference that we had in Guatemala that, you know, led to a 36-year civil war? In a way, in a way. I mean, it's it's the same ideology of the Cold War era, basically fighting communism. Sure. Right? So the FARC, which is the main guerrilla group, um, they were kind of this communist left and, you know, they wanted to reclaim land for people and... This kind of time's old tale, the military were fighting the FARC and then a bunch of paramilitary groups popped up. And there's kind of this interesting distinction where organized crime groups weren't necessarily on the side of the government or on the side of the people. They were out for themselves. They were out for themselves. So uh, the FARC started kind of stealing land, taking over criminal economies that were controlled by drug dealers. And so the drug dealers would fund their own paramilitary groups to try to fight off the FARC, and then, you know, inevitably there would be this quagmire where they were fighting government troops, the FARC, and then there was also this paramilitary from the organized crime group. So sure. it, it got it got messy, and it's, it's still messy. I mean, it's there was a peace accord in 2016 to end this internal conflict, but it's still going on nowadays. I think a thing that I noticed when I was reading just about not only, like, Colombia and, and, like you just said, in the last 50, 60, 70 years of, you know, turmoil in that region. A lot of what struck me as far as Colombia in particular recently is that it, it seems almost like a, an accelerated version of things that we see taking place nowadays in not only the United States, but in like, I guess, more developed parts of the Western world and the first world. And that like, without, you know, infiltration by ourselves, or I guess with infiltration by ourselves in our own country, 
we've had, you know, similar outcomes, but in Colombia, it just seems a lot more accelerated. Do you, do you think that's true? Um, I don't know if I would say accelerated as much as like grander in scope. Like I think if you think of the U.S. nowadays, you see a lot of this uh, infighting, right? Mm-hmm. So surrounding what the 2020 elections sure like that was probably the closest or the 2016 election. yeah this is probably the closest moment in terms of internal conflicts since the civil war sure right in yeah. terms of just society turning against itself and along political lines right uh-huh. but the thing is that nowadays the guerrilla fighting that's been happening in colombia would just not be possible right like in terms of where the u.s is like that the scale and the, the, scale, and the size. Like, it would be more of this, I don't maybe know. Maybe accelerated isn't the right word, but maybe, I guess, a concentrated version yeah. of what's going on in the United yeah. States is happening in Colombia. Yeah, I think so. Is that so. correct to say? I, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, you know, obviously pretty broad parallel. And it's born out of a, like a class inequality. Yeah. And socioeconomic distance of a majority of the population versus a majority of the wealth. Certainly. And so tell me a little bit about what you... I guess, found during your research for Insight Crime as far as like how that ties into the organized crime groups that exist in Colombia? Yeah, so I would say what my main focus is at Insight Crime and kind of still now is essentially investigating corruption, investigating accountable governance in contexts of systemic corruption. Okay. So you see this play out in Colombia, you see this play out everywhere across the region, but it's it's really hyper-focused in Central America a lot. Mm-hmm. But the exact same thing is happening in Colombia. And that's essentially just official corruption. You know, people in the government inflating contract prices, getting kickbacks. I mean, there's any number of ingenious schemes to defraud the government and just rob state coffers. Is there any particular case that you remember researching that was like a like bigger than most kind of deal? Oh, yeah. Let's see. I mean, it's hard to even pick a state or pick a nation, I guess. Maybe around, well, El Salvador is a nice case right now. Sure. So there was a ton of basically overspending on pandemic relief, right? So buying emergency supplies, buying vaccines, whatever it may be. Anything for the last year related to COVID relief has been used by officials in the El Salvadorian government to, I don't know, fill their own pockets with state funds. And it gets worse. Um, Recently, President Nayib Bukele is his name. And he's essentially... A dictator in skinny jeans is what people like to call him because he's 35, somewhere around there. He says. <laughs> yeah. Don't let me, don't quote me on that. He's young. Mm. And he's, he's not 40. He, no. Well. Uh, he's not 40. All right. We're going to go with uh, 35. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, when he came into power, he basically modeled himself after Trump in a way. And this kind of shows you. Like a celebrity president. Celebrity president. Yeah. Uh, he's really big on Twitter. He, he gives all of his decrees by Twitter. Great. And what he recently did, well, they had kind of their parliamentary elections. Okay. And he took a super majority. So he controls everything in, in El Salvador right now. Sure. He also has incredible support. Yeah. Like he, his approval ratings are massive. He's a populist leader. He's a populist leader with an authoritarian streak, which is going to turn authoritarian and already has. And you mentioned a lot of the policies like centered around like a COVID relief kind of thing, which I'm not trying to just draw you back to this one place in particular. But like I, I do understand that in Colombia that that was a, a like a large like catalyst for what's going on now. Yeah. In the protests. Is yeah. That there's a lack of government support and, and government relief for people that have been. 
been without a job and had their careers and livelihoods decimated by this. Yeah, of course. I mean, nobody in Latin America got stimulus checks no. for our U.S. audience, right? And unemployment is pretty much non-existent, right? So you're not getting a $300 check a week. Sure. And you have to understand as well that a lot of Colombia's economies are informal economies. So, you know, 60, 70% of workers don't have health insurance. They don't have any guaranteed paycheck. There's a lot of street vendors. So when a health crisis comes in and just decimates that industry, people don't have anywhere to turn. Yeah, there's not a, there's not a safety net. Yeah, and so there's a lot of uh, usury lending, right? This is one aspect of organized crime that takes place everywhere, but was specifically concentrated in Colombia during this crisis was just kind of petty criminals trying to extort people, for lack of a better word. When you say a petty criminal, and for our fans at home who like The Sopranos, organized crime means something to (laughs) us that it doesn't mean to the modern world. Organized crime in Colombia, when you say that, and smaller players within that kind of community, describe who those people are. Yeah, that's a good distinction. So I guess after studying organized crime very specifically, Petty criminals are your local street gang. Okay. So they're... Drug dealers. Drug dealers, yeah. That's usually... So their criminal economy would be like extortion, uh, street-level drug dealing, maybe micro-trafficking, which is essentially just smuggling drugs in very small quantities. But how do they play in, I guess, to the system of uh, how that... Organized crime, generally. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess just to give give the definitions, organized crime would be anything with a more coordinated logic about it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm transporting tons of cocaine through... Customs. Customs, exactly, right? Or I'm defrauding this company so that I can give fake jobs to people that don't actually go to work. Exactly. Or like... Uh, I have an illegal mining operation in X territory. Right. That isn't that hasn't been given the clearance by yeah. the actual State Department or whatever. Something that takes money, it takes like know how, yeah. and it takes manpower. And it takes and it takes a level of corruption that exists on multiple levels. Exactly. Exactly. Organized crime generally has deep political connections. Yeah. Yeah. And so would you say that like again, in a way that the events that go on not only in Colombia but in in El Salvador in 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 Guatemala and, and all over that region are a more concentrated version of what could take place in the United States or you know a larger country that's yeah, you no, know absolutely what i'm asking is that like in that same kind of regard of those two things being like a more one more being concentrated than the other is the organized crime do you think the influence bears a lot or there's a lot more influence bearing on the state government or the official government of that country by organized crime groups than it would be in the United States. And organized crime in the United States isn't like it used to be. Right. I should say. I guess the thing about organized crime in the U.S., I mean, this is, you know, a leftist pod, so I'll just say it. Yeah, yeah, say it. It's it's big Uh, pharma. Yeah, we've legalized it. You know, it's lobbyists, it's big pharma. Exactly. It's it's everything in there. You're absolutely right. It's just a less... It's a less legalized, new legal the show. version. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, you're a friend of the show now. I'll get my invite back now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what it is. And, you know, they've legalized if They've made it businesses, corporations. They have they've gone legit. Interests. Yeah, they've gone legit. But, you know, it really is a similar dynamic to what drug traffickers are doing. Or And that influence that they have in a place like Colombia is as much as, uh, as like big tobacco could have on a yeah. senator here. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the point of rooting out this corruption is basically to break those ties between politics and organized crime. But 
you know, to do that, it's pretty hard because you ever heard this term interpolation? Pete nodding, but I haven't. Okay. And for those of you at home who also didn't nod, yes, please tell me what yeah, that yeah. is. So in- interpolation comes out of philosophy and it's this idea that the individual kind of absorbs the ethics of their surrounding environment, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like the idea that you you are the amalgamation of your five closest friends. Okay. Have you ever heard that? I never heard that. I never heard that. We're all learning something. Today. Yeah, yeah, I am. But yes, exactly that, right? So in Colombia, for instance, there's this like political system that has been influenced by organized crime for so long, mm-hmm. right? And so every politician that comes into power, right, they kind of expect that that's the way in which their time and political power is going to function. Like they, they have to do this. They have to. Mm-hmm. And so like to go back to El Salvador for a second, Nayib Bukele, he was the governor of San Salvador, the capital. And he basically negotiated with street gangs, but like this is the MS-13, which is a gang that has such proportion to it that it rises to the level of organized crime. Mm -hmm. It's massive. They have a name like MS-13. Exactly. That's kind of cool. They they have a name. I Listen, I'm not trying to like sponsor or like, you know, get behind any of these people, but like, that's not bad. MS-13 sounds pretty cool. And I'll give a shout out to uh, Stephen Dudley. He's the co-founder of Insight Crime, and he's written extensively on MS-13. Okay. He put a new book out. I don't know what it is. but We can drop a link for it if you, if, if you can find it. If anybody's and, uh, interested in it, he's a good guy to read. But that's just to say, Naib Bukele, like, he negotiated with gangs when he was a governor, and then he assumed the presidency. Similarly, Insight Crime broke a story. Was it illegitimate, you think? I don't think it was illegitimate. You think he won that election? Yeah. You think he did the same thing that kind of Donald Trump did, where he won the hearts yeah. and minds? Yeah, yeah. He, he has. He has. His approval ratings prove it. Can I ask you why you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I'll try to give you something on I it. mean, like, in your perspective, I'm not trying to ask you to give me, like, why it's happening, but why? Do, why what do you think? Yeah. What do you think that the success of that abroad, like, in an example like him, is... Yeah, what does it speak to? It, it almost seems like it works. It, it's, it seems almost like a more smooth version of what Trump did. You have to recognize that. It's kind of a double-sided coin, right? So during the pandemic, Nayib Bukele put out on Twitter that he was giving the military authorization to shoot gang members on site, Mm -hmm. right? And you have to understand that gang violence or extortion or any criminal economies that gangs are into, these are legitimate security threats for citizens in El Salvador. Like, you you don't watch a crime take place and say, like, this is gang violence. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the, how do you discern between a... The thing is, if you're a citizen, right, it's your just, like, perceived impact. Like, if you're out there and you got extorted last week and Naib Bukele comes in and tells you that, like... Sure. You know, they're going to shoot gang members on site, then you're like, fuck yeah, get these guys out of my neighborhood. Maybe I should rephrase that. I understand that the enthusiasm could be, you know, there for that kind of decision. Right. But once that decision is enacted into policy into like the actual practice of the police how do they discern between what's gang activity and what's just you know a one-off street crime oh yeah well how do they (laughs) how do they how do they determine whether or not the military can shoot at somebody mugging somebody yeah yeah and uh somebody that's like you know a part of a larger system well i don't know you'd probably have to ask naive right and i'm sure i would get a great answer yeah i'm sure he'd give you Tucker Carlson actually interviewed him. So if oh, you'd yeah? like to, yeah, if you want to listen to an interview. Well, if, if Naive would like to come on the show, <laughs> yeah. um, my phone number is. 
four five, and uh, he can text me whenever he wants. Yeah, Naib, if you're listening, come on on. Text me. Yeah, that text would be so funny. Yeah, it would be very very funny. He would be interested. I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> I'm sure he is. He has skinny jeans. He said. Yeah, he's got skinny jeans. Uh, I mean, that's a podcast kind of. But guy. I guess to show you, like the the criminal scope of these presidents, so Naib, just because we're on him, like he and how is this man the 35 year old? Yeah, he's young. And what's his background like? He's really into God, too. Really into God. Yeah. So what's his background like before he entered into the political arena? Businessman. Businessman. What kind of business? If I had to guess, generally, these guys are in like real estate. Like they're in pretty big industry. Yeah, real estate. Okay. Listen, if you're in real estate, quote unquote, then you are a uh, crooked businessman. I I don't think that you're actually dealing in anything that you're selling. You're not you're not actually like working at developing a business of any kind. You are buying and selling property. Yeah. And you are making money hand over fucking fist. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. No. That sounds like what that's like. Yeah. I mean, but. Let me just give you an example. Sure, sure, please. The, like, I guess, criminal range of these politicians. So, Nayib Bukele, as governor, he negotiates with the gangs to try to drop street violence. As president, he does something similar. But at the same time, right, so you have, like, a more tangible in the streets, like, dealing with criminals. And then as president, recently, this is, like, last week, they passed legislation to essentially give anybody related to the misappropriation of pandemic spending immunity right so nobody can be prosecuted on charges related to overspending on goods related to the pandemic and in in an example what would that be that would be you know pete here i buy five thousand surgical masks from pete and they're one dollar a mask yeah one dollar five thousand dollars five thousand okay yeah okay Nailed it. and just check that at home yeah everybody and I charge him five dollars a mask, and then I give him price gouging. You're talking about two dollars, yeah, exactly, something like that, right? And then he gets a kickback, I get a kickback. We have the masks, but we also just pocketed a little of the state funds that I used to pay for it with. You know what this sounds like? What it sounds like contract bidding and like contract rigging. Yeah, it, I mean it is. It's, That's it's, what it it's, is. It's small scale contract rigging. Yeah, but the thing is, it's not small scale. I mean, these Wait, people no, are doing not. it. You're for right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely US right. Dollars. Because this is a this is a large scale. It's a government. Yeah, government. I mean, country size response to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and and you you have like you just said, people price gouging on PPE kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. It's all PPE and. Um, I mean, so that, that kind of shows you. And then him passing this legislation to give immunity to anybody who could possibly be implicated in that. I mean, there are already all of these investigations coming out. There's this amazing uh, news outlet in El Salvador called El Faro. And El Faro is just like the WAPO maybe or, you know, they do everything investigative. They crush it. Yeah. And Nayib Bukele has used... They're not owned by Amazon, right? No, I don't Good. think so. They're even better than WAPO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think Bezos has a piece yet. Yeah, not yet. Um, <laughs> they did publish an op-ed recently, though, in the New York Times. So I don't know how this podcast feels about the New York Times, but... Uh, we don't have a subscription. Well, me neither. I can't afford it. Yeah, we can't either. Become a patron today, please, so that we can read the New York Times. <laughs> Please. I'd love to do that crossword. I've been asking. Yeah, they got some good international coverage. I'll just give me the Sunday paper. I'll, I'll get it all on Sunday. New York Times is going to say, stop saying our name so much in your podcast. Really? New York Times, New York Times, New York Times, New York Times? Where were we? Um, With El Salvador being an example that you just gave, what is that like in Colombia? Is there a, is 
what's the name of the person that is the equivalent of that guy in Colombia for the last few years? Um, Uribe. Yeah. Uribe is the guy pulling all the strings. Right now, the president's name is Duque. Same guy? Not the same guy. Uribe is essentially the puppet master of the current president. What is his official title? He's currently being prosecuted. That's a title. Yeah, that, that's the title. He's an ex-president. Um, he essentially... He was the last president. He was the last president, yeah. And he, he was closely associated with the current president. Yes. Yeah, the current president is essentially his protege and puppet. Aribe is being prosecuted right now for what? Um, For essentially funding paramilitary groups to fight the FARC. And these paramilitary groups stand accused of just killing people, killing citizens. Yeah. Are they the people that have been unleashed onto the protesters? Um, no. So that's that's the current police force. But, you know, a lot of these government-funded paramilitary groups, once those paramilitary groups were disbanded, where do those people go? Those people go straight into the police force. Yeah. And so in a way, those are the people that are, you know, confronting the protesters. Again, like a concentrated version of the United States government like exactly. culture of, like, you go fight in the army and then you, come you don't really have much to do other than join the police force. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And so you have these hyper-militarized police forces in the streets, quote-unquote, defending the country against protesters or whatever, but what they end up doing is killing protesters in the streets right? using lethal force where it's not warranted. Yeah. You know, a lot of the narratives right now around the protests are similar to the narratives that were coming out of the U.S. during the George Floyd protests. Yeah. Essentially that the protests have been infiltrated by Antifa, right, that they're co-opting the protests and they're seeding violence and this this radical kind of branch is taking it over. And in Colombia, they're saying that, you know, the FARC, yeah. right, these ex-guerrilla dissidents, that they have infiltrated the protests against police violence and they're using the protests as kind of this cloak this excuse. to seed terror. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So it, it's similar to the George Floyd even, protests. Is there even a force that they have made into a boogeyman like Antifa has been made into here? It's the FARC. It, it's these FARC guerrilla is- groups. Okay. Right? So the government is saying it's the FARC, it's the ELN, you know. There's plenty of groups to try to blame it on. Trying to struggle to understand a little here. The FARC is, you think, more in the favor of the people. Maybe? Well, it's yeah. hard to say. It gets well, messy. Well, I mean, when you, when you see things that have taken place like what ends up happening um i mean yeah the initial ideology of the farc was right for the people sure but the thing is as the farc waged this decades-long war the farc needed to fund itself and the way the farc would fund itself was by you know expropriating someone's land going and stealing this farm and then being able to sell off those products or something or kidnapping somebody and extorting a family for ransom and so the population kind of soured on the farc because they would just, you know, get kidnapped, their brother's kidnapped, their friend's farm is stolen, right? Like, it quickly left this kind of ideal of, like, this communist society, people coming together as they had to struggle to maintain their grasp on power in order to fight the government. It got too splintered and kind of yeah, lost Yeah, so the it's direction. like, does the ends justify the means is almost the question, but I think any Colombian would probably tell you no, just because the FARC has done a lot of damage to society but in the same way that the government's done damage to society. It's just not a clear picture of who's right in this situation. Well, how many people have the police killed? I mean, in these protests? Yeah. In the protests, Compared they've the killed FARC, over is there, is there like a count? I mean, in terms of the protests right now. Within the last one or two years, yeah. Um, 
I don't know. It's hard to say. The FARC yeah, used to carry out more political assassination. I guess what I'm asking is that, like, how often is it that potentially, and maybe, and you could tell me if this is wrong or not, how often could it be a mass protest that ends up with lethal force being taken onto the protesters? Right. And how often is it said that it was FARC responsible yeah. more than the police? So I guess Who's just, responsible, just to do you paint think, a I quick guess. picture of it, like they're both responsible in different ways. Like right now with the protests, the police are coming out and they're using indiscriminate force, just like launching tear gas canisters, not into the crowd, but at the crowd. Right. So like horizontal straight into somebody's chest. Aggressive behavior. It. Aggressive, aggressive behavior. I mean, shooting people in the streets, like what the Colombian police are doing is fucked. Like they're just shooting people down in the streets. It's insane. And they're like cutting off the electricity in certain cities so people can't organize. I mean, they're engaging in some kind of class. It, it's human rights abuse. Yeah. Like it's yes. everybody has called it out, save for the US. Um, oh, well, we're special. But, you know, it's it, it's really fucked. But, you know, for decades, what the, the FARC have done, I would say less on the side of killing people, though they certainly have killed people. is just the kind of way that they prey on more marginalized citizens who don't Civilians. have access yeah who don't have access to resources and if you're living in a rural area and you go to school but there's not really many prospects of you working your way up in society like right now as Colombia is if you're a lower class citizen it takes you 11 generations to get to the middle class status is that official it's official uh, just reading a report 11 generations 11 generations to climb to the middle class which is insane and so the FARC is taking advantage of this to recruit kids into the FARC because, you know, I, I don't have many prospects. You tell me that you're going to throw me on an illegal gold mine and you're going to give me a cut every week, every month, and that's going to allow me to save up and maybe get out of here. Hell yeah, I'm in on that. What do you think is the answer to a group that is doing the things that they're doing in the face of the brutality that the police is also doing? Is it that those people need to be stopped or is it that they need to be listened to because of the way that they're able to so easily recruit so many people to help them out? What I'm asking is that, like, isn't there kind of an inequality, like you just said, that's 11 generations long that they're faced with that this group is giving them kind of a shorter answer to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the genesis of organized crime in a way from the beginning. Right. Why is it so easy to fuel these organized crime groups? Well, there's a lot of people without opportunity. And so they make their own opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're hustlers. I mean, people in Latin America are smart as hell and they have ingenious ways of, you know, fixing things, but also of committing crimes. And that's kind of the interesting part of organized crime is to see the ingenuity of it. But to also it's born out of a situation where they're there's no other option. There's no other options. Yeah. Exactly. And so if you had, I don't know, increased government spending, if you had these governments like taking care of their people, taking care of the people, if they stop just stuffing their pockets with state funds through these corrupt means and they invest in the community, like, yeah, obviously that's a long term solution to organized crime. But we have kind of a snake eating its own tail. Thing yeah, it's right in here. the short term, like that's not really happening. And then over generations, as more as organized crime continues to flourish and governmental corruption continues to flourish, you have this idea of interpolation where everybody's seeing it. And that kind of just etches its way into a society and becomes the like modus operandi of living and just kind of business operating and, you know. The norm. Yeah, it's it's this um I don't know, philosophy of 
justice just isn't quite there. Like things are taken into their own hands. You yeah. Know? There's no culture of, um, I don't know, rule abidingness. Yeah. And not necessarily among the citizens, more at like a governmental level. Sure. It's like once these people have power, then they're like, well, don't have to answer to anybody. Do you have any friends down there? Oh, plenty. You want to shout out? Maybe I'll give a shout out to the assistant attorney general of Guatemala. He let me interview him not too long ago, and I was very appreciative of that. Estuardo Campo. So if he ever stumbles upon this, it'll be a strange shout out for him to get, let me tell you. He'll be like, who the fuck is this guy? uh, Appreciates the episode. Oh, yeah. Where we're coming from is a good place. You want, I'm sure, to see the best for all of those people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm interested in it. I just have too many friends there to not care. There's too many people to not care. Exactly. You said it. The last question I want to ask you that's kind of like a large overarching thing about this. In the kind of situation that you described uh, with organized crime groups infiltrating, you know, lower class people that have been faced with not many options at all. When that kind of thing is the developing situation in Colombia, again, going back to the comparison between that and the United States, like, do you see a way that that could happen here or that it's already happening here? How could we avoid that? I think I'll say two things about this. I think one a really important thing is to kind of shift the Overton window, right? Just what we can talk about, what's normalized. That's a big thing. But I, I would say another thing is making sure we we kind of challenge our current political system through legitimate means yeah right um as slow and kind of frustrating as that is you know i I don't think in the u.s we're really going to have this super subversive illegal kind of left working against the political establishment I, i just don't see that happening but what i do see is a lot of um leftist supporters who are you know, raging against the system so much. Maybe this is going to get me uninvited. I see, a, I see a lot of like leftists who are raging against the system and I wish they would channel that energy into some kind of like almost pragmatic channel while not giving up the fight, you know, in this I'm selling out kind of way. Like, I think that's a... Well, we don't have to wait 11 generations Yeah. over here. I understand. Exactly. That. But like, I, I can't really afford one. Yeah, no. I, I And a lot of people feel that I way agree, too. I agree, but... I just don't think that, you know, not participating is how you get to that one generation just all of a sudden manifesting itself, right? Sure. There's something more than that, though, surely. I don't know. I mean, the the, the systems, that I guess, that we've had in... I mean, we tried to bet it all on Bernie. It didn't work. I was there with you guys. Did we? I trust mean, me. like, I don't know. That wasn't all what we were betting it on. I mean, like, it was just kind of like, that would have been nice. I, I, For sure. In my mind, that's what I see it as. It's not like I was expecting everything to change. But it's like what I guess the question one is man, because that's I think the difference between a place like us and a place like Colombia is that the election of a president wouldn't make the difference as far as the daily livelihood of a lot true. of people. That's true. I mean, my question though to you would be like, what is that immediate one generation change? Like there are so many things that are happening in the government that the one generation change is that president. Right. Like he he's the person that we're betting on. But like if we want to make our one generation change, I don't know, fifteen dollar minimum wage or something like my my point is that it's a little more uh, fragmented, the fight sure. than it is like, you know, one fell blow. We're going to take down the system. I don't think one election is ever going to change a lot of people's lives. 
but I do think that always remembering that you're supposed to know your station yeah. and what society you live in is important to understand if you're wanting to make it better. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think it's a plug for local politics, honestly. I think it's yeah, a plug for absolutely. like I agree voting you. or just being educated on politics in general. Like, that's why you should listen to this show. Yeah. Well, you should listen to the show. You heard it here first. Oh, I love talking to you here today. I, yeah, it's uh, been great. I think, I think again, like the example that's going on in all over Latin America, not just Colombia, but in El Salvador and Guatemala, like Shane said, is a hyper chamber of what we already see in our country now. And I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Give me your insight for crime. Dot <laughs> <laughs> org. Dot org. And then Pete, play us out with a little music here. We got these new mics today. This is the first episode with the new mics. Aaron isn't even here, but he's going to play us out. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.